Well, it's, uh, it's impossible to go just about anywhere these days without seeing someone taking pictures or videos or, or of something or other. Uh, you can't go to the Burj Khalifa without seeing a hundred or a thousand smartphones or cameras out. People take pictures and videos of their wedding. We did. Uh, they take pictures of their children's activities. And the, the list goes on and on. People love to, to take pictures and, and videos. I think they do this for all sorts of reasons. Some people love to post it on social media. But one of the, the main reasons is that they want to remember certain events and they want to remember certain experiences. They want to have something tangible by which to remember this thing they did, this event they went to, this thing that happened to them. And maybe they want to be able to preserve those memories to be able to show their children and their grandchildren someday so their kids can see the day they got married, their grandchildren can see the day they visited the Burj Khalifa. Now I think people often miss out on the very experiences they are trying to remember by taking so many pictures, but that's a conversation for another day. And the bottom line is that people take pictures and videos in order to remember. Well, just like we did last week, in a similar way that we did last week, we're going to be thinking a little bit about the topic of remembrance today. You can turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 12. We're going to be in Exodus 12, verse 29, through Exodus 13, verse 16. And so if you remember last week, if you were here last week, we studied the institution of the Passover and the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread that the people of Israel were to celebrate throughout their history to remember God's mercy, to remember his sparing of their firstborn sons and his deliverance from Egypt. Remember that people were to slaughter, slaughter the Passover lamb to paint the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death, the destroyer, would pass over their homes as he went through Egypt. And then year after year, generation after generation, they, were continue, they would continue to slaughter a lamb each and every year after that, they no longer painted the blood on the door, but to remember God's deliverance from them in Egypt. Well, God's mercy is still very much in view in our text for this week, but there is an emphasis on, in this week, in the text for this week, the, need for, the emphasis is for the need for Israel to remember God's faithfulness so that they might be formed into a faithful people. And so the, the main idea of this text is that God is faithful to his word and his people, God is faithful to his word and his people, and he calls his people to be faithful to him. So I have two points to help you consider that idea this morning. The first is simply that God is faithful. And then the second is that God's people are to be faithful. God is faithful, and second, God's people are to be faithful. So first, let's look at this idea that, that God is faithful. Look at we starting in Exodus 12, verse 29. Now at midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and every firstborn of the livestock. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with all his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. He summoned Moses and Aaron during the night and said, Get out immediately from among my people, both you and the Israelites, and go. Worship the Lord as you have said. Take even your flocks and your herds as you asked and leave, and also bless me. Now the Egyptians pressured the people in order to send them out quickly, or to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, We're all going to die. So the people took their dough before it was leavened with their kneading bowls wrapped up in their clothes on their shoulders. 
The Israelites acted on Moses' word and asked the Egyptians for silver and gold items and for clothing. And the Lord gave the people such favor with the Egyptians that they gave them what they requested. In this way, they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 able-bodied men on foot, besides their families. A mixed crowd also went up with them, along with a huge number of livestock, both flocks and herds. The people baked the dough they had brought out of Egypt into unleavened loaves, since it had no yeast. For when they were driven out of Egypt, they could not delay and had not prepared provisions for themselves. The time that the Israelites lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that same day, all the Lord's military divisions went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of vigil in honor of the Lord, because he would bring them out of the land of Egypt. This same night is in honor of the Lord, a night vigil for all the Israelites throughout their generations. Well, as we come to this text, we really kind of pick up in the middle of that last plague. If we remember back to last week in Exodus 11, God promised Pharaoh through Moses that would he not let the people go, he was going to send the angel of death throughout the land of Egypt, and the firstborn of all the Egyptians and their livestock would die. And God gave the Israelites the instructions how they might receive mercy by painting the blood of the lamb over their door. And so we pick up right in the middle of that. Uh, the people of Israel has done what the Lord has commanded, uh, but now the destroyer is passing through the land of Egypt. But I think these verses emphasize the fact that God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his word, both his word of judgment against Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, but also his word of, of promise and of protection to Israel. Now, through the, the judgment he inflicted on Egypt, God accomplished that which he had been promising throughout Exodus. That he would rescue his people, that he would redeem his people from their, their slavery in Egypt. That is the promise God has made over and over and over again throughout Exodus. And repeatedly in Exodus as well, God told Pharaoh that if he would not listen and if he would not let the people go as he commanded, that he would bring judgment through plagues. God has been faithful to that word throughout Exodus, and the death of the firstborn was no exception. God was faithful to his word of judgment. Yet even in the, the midst of God's judgment, we see God's mercy at work, just as we did last week. And God was clearly merciful to Israel by, by providing a means for their firstborn to be spared, providing a means by which they could receive God's mercy. But also, this verse that we've thought about a number of times in our study through Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, we read that a mixed crowd also left Egypt with the Israelites. Now, I cannot be 100% sure that this mixed crowd included Egyptians, but it seems likely that it included Egyptians, as there were Egyptians that had begun listening to the word of the Lord. If you remember back a few weeks ago, there was Egyptians who brought their livestock and their servants in from the fields when God pronounced the plague of hail, because God said that anybody out there would die. And yet there were some Egyptians that listened and rescued their livestock and their servants. But whether or not this mixed crowd included Egyptians, it certainly included those who were not Israelites. And so what is certain is that God's mercy extended beyond the nation of Israel, and God showed mercy to those who were willing to identify themselves with God's people, the people of Israel, and join God's people as they left Egypt. 
But again, as, as we've thought about a number of times, to receive this mercy, people had to humble themselves and they had to submit to the Lord. Now, though this mixed crowd may have included Egyptians, for the most part, Egyptians, the Egyptians seemed unwilling to do this. In verse 33 that we just read, it says that the Egyptians pressured the people of, the people of Israel to leave Egypt quickly because they were afraid that they were going to die. They just saw all of their firstborn die. They told the people of Israel, get out. We don't want any more death inflicted on us. In other words, for the most part, they chose to drive out the people of Egypt rather than, or the people of Israel, excuse me, rather than join the people of Israel. They recognized God's power, but they refused to submit to his authority. Uh, the same thing is true of, of Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself drove out God's people. But did you, did you notice that as he's driving out God's people, as he's commanding Moses to, to get out, he asked Moses to bless him. But Pharaoh wanted the blessing of God without repenting or submitting himself to God. He wanted God's blessing, but he had no desire to submit to his authority. Now, friends, one of the, the main takeaways from these verses and particularly if you are here and, and not a Christian, is that God is faithful to his word of judgment. God is faithful to his word of judgment. God is patient and merciful. We, we've seen that throughout Exodus. God has been so patient with, with Egypt. He's been so patient with Pharaoh. He's been merciful to his people and even the people of Egypt. But God is ultimately faithful to his word of judgment. And friends, if you are here and not a Christian, know that God has promised that Jesus will one day return. Jesus was here on earth. He died for the sins of all those who would repent and believe on the cross. He was raised from the dead three days later, ascended to the right hand of the Father. But one day he will return to call his people home, but to judge those who have not followed him. Now, those who have not humbled themselves, repented of their sins, and placed their faith in Jesus will be cast into hell. But the Bible says there will be weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. A weeping much greater than we see even in the land of Egypt when this destroyer passed through the, the land of Egypt and killed the firstborn sons of all those in Egypt. But friends, know that, that God is faithful to show grace and mercy to those who humble themselves, repent of their sins, and place their faith in Jesus Christ. This is the only path of blessing. That's something that Pharaoh did not understand. He wanted the Lord's blessing, but he did not want to humble himself before the Lord. As we read these, these first few verses of our, our text, and we think about this plague that's actually inflicted on the people of Egypt, I think we're naturally drawn to the judgment that comes to Pharaoh in Egypt. But I believe the focus of the text seems to be more on God's faithfulness to his people than even this judgment that, that falls on Pharaoh in Egypt. And notice that the nation of Israel came out of Egypt with 600,000 able-bodied men. And many scholars speculate this means that something in the neighborhood of 2 million Israelites came out of Egypt, once you include their, their wives and the, the children that were present with them. And so we remember back to God's promise to Abraham that he would make Abraham's descendants more numerous than the, the stars of the sky and, and more numerous than the sand that was on the seashore. But despite the oppression of Israel in Egypt, 
despite Pharaoh's attempts that we saw even way back in, in chapter 1 and, and 2 to wipe out the nation of Israel, God was faithful to fulfill that promise. In addition, God gave favor to the Israelites among the Egyptians so that they, when, asked, when they asked for silver and gold and the clothing of the people of Egypt, the people of Egypt gave it over to them, and probably out of fear, probably because they just wanted them out of there. But what a kindness from the Lord. As people had been enslaved for hundreds of years in the land of, of Egypt, God was not just giving them the money that they were likely owed and were owed for their hard labor in the land of Egypt, but giving them what they needed, the resources that they needed to, to live on their own, to establish themselves as a, as a nation as they, as they went out to, to be a nation to the Lord. And God was being faithful to provide for the needs of his people. But most significantly, God was faithful to fulfill his promise to redeem his people from Egypt. And God was faithful to fulfill his promise to redeem his people from Egypt. But though God proved himself to be completely faithful, though he fulfilled his promise that he has made over and over again to Egypt in Exodus, I want you to notice that Israel had to wait for God's word to be fulfilled. Look at verses 40 and, and 41 of, of chapter 12. It twice mentions the fact that Israel had been in Egypt for 430 years. Now they were not enslaved for all that time, but they were probably enslaved for a large portion of that time. Israel had to wait a long time for God's redemption. The plagues that God inflicted on Egypt did not take place over the course of like two weeks or one month. And they likely took place over a number of months, perhaps even as long as a few years. Israel had to wait for God's redemption. I'm sure there were times during that 430-year wait that Israel wondered, does God really remember his covenant to Abraham? Does he really remember his promises? I assume there were times even during the plagues that Israel wondered, is God really going to redeem us? Is he really more powerful than Pharaoh and all the armies of Egypt? Is he powerful enough to rescue us from Egypt? Why is it taking so long? But God was absolutely faithful to his promises. And he was absolutely faithful to his people. And God told this to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them, and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. That is exactly what happened. It's exactly what we see in our text this morning. Brothers and sisters, perhaps there are times when you also doubt or also wonder does God really care for me? Will he ever answer my prayer? Will he ever answer my cries for mercy and for relief? Will God really remember his promises? Is he really powerful enough to keep his word? Is he more powerful than those forces and those people who stand against me? Is God's word true? Is eternal life real? Will Jesus really return again? Is it really worth it to follow him? Well, this is what 
the Apostle Peter writes in 2 Peter to those struggling with similar questions. Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Well, the, the believers, the church to whom Peter was writing were wondering if Jesus was truly going to return. There were false teachers in their midst saying, it's been a long time, it's been like 30 years. And you really think Jesus is going to return? Well, here we sit a couple thousand years later, but to the Lord one day is as a thousand years. God is patient with his people. And so Peter assures his readers that Jesus will return and that his delay is simply a, a sign of God's patience and his mercy. Peter assures his readers that God will be faithful to his promises. If you read throughout the letter of 2 Peter, all of chapter 2 is basically devoted to Peter giving the evidence of God's faithfulness to his word. He tells his people they can be assured that Jesus will be faithful to return because God has been faithful to his word of old. Over and over again, we've seen the ways that God has been faithful. And so in light of those, the truth of those things, Peter urges the Christians to whom he is writing to live holy lives, to faithfully follow the Lord, to hold fast to the word that they have been given and the promises that they have been given. He calls them to be faithful to God and, and faithful to God's word because God's word and God's faithful love have never failed and they will never fail. And that takes us to the second point of the sermon. And that is God's people are to be faithful. God is faithful and he calls his people to be faithful. So look at what you starting at verse 43 of Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner may eat it, but any slave a man has purchased may eat it after you have circumcised him. A temporary resident or hired worker may not eat the Passover. It is to be eaten in one house. You may not take any of the meat outside the house and you may not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. If an alien resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. The same law will apply to both the native and the alien who resides among you. Then all the Israelites did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. On that same day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt according to their military divisions. The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal. It is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery, for the Lord brought you out of here by the strength of his hand. Nothing leaven may be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. When the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, which he swore to your ancestors that he would give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you must carry out this ceremony in this month. For seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there is to be a festival to the Lord. Unleavened bread is to be eaten for the, those seven days. Nothing leaven may be found among you, and no yeast may be found among you in all your territory. On that day, explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead, so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth, for the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Keep this statue at its appointed time from year to year. 
When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your ancestors and gives it to you, you are to present to the Lord every firstborn male of the womb. All firstborn offspring of the livestock you own that are the males will be the Lord's. You must redeem every firstborn of a, of a donkey and with a flock animal. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. However, you must redeem every firstborn among your sons. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. That is why I sacrifice to the Lord all the firstborn of the womb that are males, but I redeem all the firstborn of my sons. So let it be a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead, for the Lord brought us out of Egypt by the strength of his hand. Well, just like we saw last week, uh, these verses this morning seem to place a, a larger emphasis on the memorial to God's work, the memorial to God's faithfulness, the, remember, the remembrance of God's faithfulness than on anything else. The people of Israel needed to remember God's faithfulness because the only hope they had of faithfully following the Lord themselves was to remember his faithful love to them. And brothers and sisters, the same thing is true of the Christian life. To faithfully follow the Lord, you must remember and meditate on God's faithful love to you. Romans 8.32 He, God, did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Well, look again with me at, at Exodus chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, Consecrate every firstborn male to me, the firstborn from every womb among the Israelites, both man and domestic animal. It is mine. I wanted to, to start in those verses as we think about the, the call of God's people to be faithful to him. Because it is important to recognize that God's people belong to him. God was redeeming his people so that they might be devoted to him. That they might worship him. Israel was being set free from one master, Pharaoh, to follow another, the Lord. The people of Israel belong to God. A Christian, the fact is, so do you. You are freed from your sin to serve God instead. Romans chapter 6, verse 22. You have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God. A number of weeks ago, I gave this quote from the book Echoes of Exodus, but I think it is worth repeating again here. Uh, the authors write this. The point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master, Pharaoh. It is for them to find delight in serving the new one, the Lord. This powerful truth is at the heart of Christian discipleship. The opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the most beautiful statements of Christian doctrine, asks, What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is profound, exodus-shaped, and delightful. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, that you are not your own, but belong body and soul in life and death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, you belong to the Lord. He's brought you into his service. And then he calls you to faithfully follow him. 
God gave the people of Israel three ceremonies, three events, three memorials to remind them of the fact that they were his. Three memorials to remind them of his faithful love for them and to form them into a faithful people to him. They were the pictures and, and videos by which Israel was to remember God's work on their behalf. And we looked at the first two of those ceremonies last week, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We'll mention them again this week and, and think some more about them this week. And the third, then, is the consecration of the firstborn that we just read about in, in chapter 13. So we thought about Passover a lot last week. Uh, the meal that God gave to Israel to remember God's redemption of the firstborn of Israel. So we're not going to go back through and review all the details of the Passover. If you want a, a full summary of those details, you can go online and listen to the sermon from last week. But I do want to stop for a moment and ask, well, why did God give instructions concerning foreigners and slaves and, and hired workers as it came to celebrating the Passover? So we saw those instructions at the end of chapter 12, but why did the Lord give them? Yeah, from a practical perspective, I guess we could say we did see a mixed crowd went up with the, the nation of Israel from Egypt. So perhaps there were some practical questions about, well, what do we do with all these people? And do they celebrate the Passover with us? And if so, how? But what I want you to notice is that the key distinction between who can eat the Passover and who cannot is found in verse 48 of chapter 12. If an alien or foreigner resides among you and wants to observe the Lord's Passover, every male in his household must be circumcised and then he may participate. He will become like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat it. Uh, foreigners, uh, aliens of the land, those of the mixed crowd, could eat of the Passover as long as, as they were circumcised or if they were a female, the, the males of their house were, were circumcised. And so remember, God gave Abraham and his descendants the sign of circumcision as a sign and a, of a seal of God's promises to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. A circumcision was given by God as a sign and seal of those promises. It marked out the people to whom those promises applied. It made a distinction. As the Israelites circumcised their sons, it was to remind them of God's promises. But at the same time, it was an expression of, of faith in those promises as they carried this out year after year with generation after generation. And so as we see in these verses, foreigners and slaves were not permitted to eat the Passover unless unless they were circumcised or the males in their house were circumcised. The point is that these foreigners or, or slaves, they had to identify with the people of God. And they, in essence, had to say, we want to be Israelites. We no longer want to be Egyptians or whatever nation that we came from. We want to identify with the people of God. We want to be Israelites. The circumcision was a sign of faith and devotion to the Lord. This is why the temporary workers in the nation of Israel were not permitted to eat it. Kind of like the UAE does not give citizenship to expats, to, to you or, or to me. God was saying, you have to identify with my people and become one of them. Not just live in their land to eat the Passover. But unlike the UAE, God gave those people a path to citizenship. A path for anyone to become one of his people to belong. 
Well, friends, this, this fact that people had to be circumcised before eating the Passover meant that there was no power in these ceremonies themselves. There was no power in these ceremonies themselves. There was no magic power that came from eating the, the Passover, no magic spiritual blessing. It was the faith that accompanied the eating of the Passover that mattered. It was the faith that accompanied the eating of the Passover that mattered. Brothers and sisters, the same thing is true of the Lord's Supper or or baptism today. There's no no magic spiritual blessing in in baptism or in taking the Lord's Supper by itself. Simply eating the bread and and drinking the cup does not impart any, any magical spiritual blessing to the people who do it. Baptism does not make one a a Christian. Baptism is an act of obedience, an act of faithfulness to the Lord, but it's an outward sign of an inward reality, a heart that has placed its faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is ultimately meaningless unless it is accompanied by a heart of faith and devotion to the Lord. It is the faith that accompanies baptism and the faith that accompanies the Lord's Supper that, that matter. Lord, give these signs to help us to, to remember, to remember his faithfulness, to give signs of, of what he has done for us. But the power is not in the signs themselves. Let me briefly note a, a, a few things about the consecration of the firstborn that we see mentioned in Exodus chapter 13. Well, you should notice first that the, the firstborns who were to be consecrated and presented to the Lord are the exact same group of those of Egypt that were killed on the night of the Passover. The firstborn males of the household and the firstborn of all the livestock. It's the same group from Israel that was spared when the destroyer passed through the land of Egypt, the firstborn of the males and the firstborn of the livestock. And God was communicating again that Israel, and specifically the firstborn of Israel, belonged to him. He had called them into his service. The the firstborn were something of a representative of all the people of Egypt. Just like Jesus would one day be a representative for all his people. The firstborn of God who came and sacrificed his life on their behalf. Well, other passages of the Bible fill in the details about this consecration of the firstborn for us. As we said earlier before Abigail came and read for us. God set aside the Levites as his priests later in Israel's history to serve him, to to be devoted to his service in place of the the firstborn males of each and every household of Israel. So in Numbers chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says this, See, I have taken the Levites from the Israelites in place of every firstborn Israelite from the womb. The Levites belong to me because every firstborn belongs to me. So all Israel belongs to him. But he takes the Levites particularly for his service. Uh, Because every firstborn belongs to me. At the time I struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated every firstborn in Israel to myself, both man and animal. They are mine. I am the Lord. Well, so the, the Levites in some sense replaced the firstborn of all the Israelite families in his service. Yet Israel was still required to consecrate and redeem every firstborn of their household, every firstborn of their, their livestock. And this actually becomes the means of support for the Levites, the, the, the priests. Uh, so the, the firstborn males of the people of Israel, as we've seen happen with, with Jesus, uh, they come up to the temple, they offer sacrifices, which become food for the Levites. They have to pay a redemption price, a small amount of money that also becomes 
support for the priests, uh, the firstborn of their, their livestock, all the clean animals. Again, they had to offer as a sacrifice. That became a means of support and, and nourishment for the priests. The firstborn of the unclean animals, like the donkeys that we see in the text, couldn't be offered as a sacrifice because it couldn't be eaten by the priests. So they either had to break the neck of that donkey or they had to offer a clean animal in its place as a, a sacrifice. Uh, again, the message is that Israel was set aside to serve the Lord. They belonged to him, body and soul. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, we are no longer called to consecrate our firstborn to the Lord. Uh, ceremony is not one that we still take part in as, as Christians. But as a Christian, you do belong body and soul to the Lord. In fact, the Bible says that all Christians, all believers, are priests to the Lord. They have been those who have been set aside for his service. So though we do not practice the ceremony of the consecration of the firstborn, God calls the Christians to something greater. He calls each and every Christian to offer their whole life to him. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, remembering God's mercy to you, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Now, friends, what is the Apostle Paul writing there? It's that your entire life is to be devoted to the Lord. You are called as a Christian to live a life of holiness and devotion to the Lord. You were to do all things to the glory of God. Again, all, priests, all Christians are priests to the Lord. So brothers and sisters, in, in light of, of that verse, I encourage you to take some time this afternoon, perhaps some time this week to just examine your life, examine your heart, and ask yourself, does my life reflect the fact that I belong body and soul to the Lord? Am I truly offering my life as a living sacrifice to the Lord? And we just sang that song, take my life, Lord, and let it be consecrated to you. This is the idea we were singing about. That the Lord would take our, our life, our hands, our, our voice, our hearts, our, our very self, and they would be consecrated and dedicated to the Lord. Well, here are some, here are some questions that, that might help you uh, think through this and, and help you in that task of self-examination. Well, does your life look much different than the non-Christian friends that you may have or your non-Christian family members? Does your life look much different than it did five years ago or, or ten years ago? Does your life look much different than it did before you were a Christian? In other words, are you growing in, in holiness? Is your, is your life being lived in an increasing devotion to the Lord? How are you using your time and your talents and your resources, the things that the Lord has given you? Immediately after what he writes in Romans 12.1, the Apostle Paul encourages believers to use their gifts for the building up of the church, what the Lord has given them for the building up of the church, other brothers and sisters in Christ. And so I believe a mark of whether you are offering your life as a living sacrifice to the Lord is whether you are increasingly willing to use your gifts to serve the body of Christ, to serve your fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord, to minister to them. If you spend all your talents and energy at work, 
Might you be overlooking the costly nature of your call to be a living sacrifice? If you're not giving generously to the work of the Lord, might you be failing to see the nature of true worship? You still spend the same amount of time watching TV or traveling to Dubai as you did before you were a Christian? Might you have overlooked the, the call to present your life as spiritual worship to the Lord? Friend, are you content to simply faithfully follow the Lord where he has planted you? To realize that God is sovereign and in control. He's placed you where he has for a reason. And he calls you to simply and contentedly faithfully follow him where he has planted you. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to use your time and talent and resources in the service of Christ's kingdom. To offer your life, your hands, your voice, and your heart to the Lord. You belong body and soul to the Lord. But as Paul writes in Romans 12:1, do it in view of the mercies of God. Uh, we don't do it just because it's there. We do it because we're remembering God has been merciful to us. Therefore, we want to respond to his mercy by offering our lives in devotion to him. Friends, there's something else I want you to particularly note about the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn that we find in Exodus 13, and that is the purpose that the Lord gives these ceremonies to Israel. Look at verses 8 and verses 14 and 15. The Lord says this, On that day, during the celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, explain to your son, this is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Let it serve as a sign for you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead so that the Lord's instruction may be in your mouth. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a strong hand. Down to verse 14 in relation to the consecration of the firstborn. In the future, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, by the strength of his hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of humans and the firstborn of livestock. When our oldest kids were, were young, they would bring water and snacks with them into the service. It was a way to keep them quiet. I think we still do that sometimes, hopefully, to keep them quiet. Uh, but uh, one of our kids, I can't remember which one, began to imitate us as we would take the Lord's Supper. Uh, so Delane and I would be eating the bread. They would grab a little bit of their snack, and they'd pop it in their mouth. And we would, take a, we, would, we would drink from the cup, and they would take their little water bottle and sip right alongside us. Well... I think that's a good picture of the role that these ceremonies were, were to play in the life of Israel. And even what baptism and Lord's Supper are one of the purposes there to serve in the life of the church. These ceremonies were given so that the people would remember. But they were also given as a way to teach future generations about the work and the faithfulness of the Lord. They were a way to, to teach future generations. They were the pictures and videos by which the people of Israel were to remember the work of the Lord. For those of you who are here and are parents, or one day might be parents, or our aunts and uncles, or our grandparents, or one day might be one of those. I think what we see here in Exodus 13 is a reminder of the responsibility you have to teach and instruct your own children about the Lord. Parents, let me exhort you that you have the primary responsibility for teaching your children about the Lord. As a church, we want to support you in that work. We want to equip you as best we can for that work. But the, pri the primary responsibility is yours. And we have actually a couple books about family worship back there in the library today. If you want to think more, and I'd encourage you, if you haven't started family worship, family devotions in your own family, to, to do that, to think about that, check out one of those books. Read about it. 
hey, you're welcome to come talk to, to, to me about it, but you have the primary responsibility for teaching your children about the Lord. And to you kids who are here, you should see that in these verses, that if you have questions about the things that you read in the Bible, the things that you see or experience in, in church, if you have questions about anything in the sermon, well, you should ask. And God gave these ceremonies so that the children of Israel would ask. It is a, it's a good thing to ask. It's a good thing to learn about the Lord, be curious, to want to know more about the things of the Lord. And to all of you, one of the, the ways that you can offer your life as a living sacrifice is to teach one another. And one, we have openings. We could use some more volunteers in children's Sunday school. So that's one way that you could do that. But, but also, like parents are to teach children, the members of the church are to teach one another. There's a particular responsibility for those of you who are spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers. The more mature members of the congregation, those who have been Christians longer to teach those who are younger or newer to the faith. The older and more mature generation of the church is, is called to pass on and guard the truths of the gospel by, by passing it down to the younger generations of the church. This is central to the life and health of the church. It's a way to offer your body as a living sacrifice to the Lord. The final thing I, I want you to see about both the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, and the Passover, these three ceremonies or memorials, is that they were to be celebrated in the Promised Land, or at least continued once they reached the Promised Land. The Lord emphasized that a couple of different times in the text. When you get to the Promised Land, do these things. Now, why would God emphasize that? Uh, at least one reason, I think, is because he knew Israel would be tempted to forget him in the, in the prosperity of the promised land. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 8 is a chapter devoted to the Lord warning the people that they would be tempted to forget him once their lives became comfortable when they entered the promised land and the trials of Egypt and the trials of their wandering in the wilderness were behind them. They would be tempted to forget so three times in Exodus 13, Moses tells the people of Israel that they are to remember that God brought them out by the strength of his hand. He tells them this because, brothers and sisters, whenever we grow comfortable, whenever life is good, we are tempted to forget our need of the Lord. We are tempted to forget, we are tempted to think that we do not need the Lord. Israel needed to remember that they needed God to save them. It was God who brought them out of the land of Egypt. It was God who rescued them from their slavery. And brothers and sisters, you need to remember that you were dead in your sins and that you needed God to save you as well. You are in constant need of his mercy and his grace. But if you know the history of Israel, you know that they did forget. The warnings of, of Deuteronomy 8 came true. Israel forgot the Lord's redeeming work. They forgot their need of him, and they placed their hope and trust in other things. They did not remain faithful to the Lord. And that is because these ceremonies, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn, they did not solve the problem of the sin of their hearts. The people of Israel kept practicing the external rituals of these festivals, but the rituals were not matched by hearts of faith. Brothers and sisters, this is why you need Jesus. Jesus, who is the representative of all of God's people. 
Unlike Israel, Jesus was perfectly faithful to God. He conformed to the external rituals as Abigail just read for us a few moments ago. But Jesus also had a heart that was perfectly faithful to his heavenly father. That did no wrong, perfectly submitted to his will. God set him aside for his service during his time on earth. And Jesus remained fully faithful to that call. He lived the perfect life that you could not live. And on the basis of that perfect life, he died the death in your place that you deserved to die. Brothers and sisters, friends, God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, a substitute for all those who would repent of their sins and believe in him. Jesus is your Passover lamb. Friends, God saves by the strength of his hand. Salvation is completely a work of God. It is not your own works that save you, but it is a work of God. God saves by the strength of his hand. Remember this, meditate on it, because remembering the truths of the gospel in view of the mercies of God, remembering the mercies of God by the power of the Spirit is the fuel for your faithfulness to the Lord. God is faithful to his word and his people, and he calls his people to be faithful to him. Let's pray.